Gosh, thank I just want to take this opportunity to welcome any of you who are joining us online. Um, we are glad you're with us. We are um, as happy as if you were in the room with us, and you're as much a part of this as if you were right here. Um, I, uh, before I start, I just want to say something. I got a chance to uh, actually come to this church about three weeks ago. Uh, when Lane asked me to speak on this Sunday, I thought, well, the last thing I want to do is walk in here and not have been here ever. So I came a few weeks ago, and I, nobody knew me. Uh, Lane did, and maybe a couple of other people, but I was just so warmly welcomed. And this is an amazing church. I just want to say that. I also want to give a shout out to whoever does your connection cards, because uh, I filled one out, and I immediately started getting emails from Red Hills Church. <laughs> So, including Lane's end of year email. And I want to celebrate that a little bit because you guys as a church are doing things that a lot of other churches aren't. I mean, a 30% bump in attendance over the course of the last year, it's not a lot of churches are experiencing that. 17 people who have followed Jesus into the waters of baptism, that's not just 17 people. That's, that's all of the family and friends and colleagues and classmates of those people I mean, that, that touches dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of lives. You've got hundreds, 300 people in groups. And what that tells me is that the people of this church actually want to be with one another and share their lives with each other. And then I look at your dream team. What is it? Uh, I think Lane mentioned 250 people serving on the dream team. I have no idea what the dream team is. But if 250 people want to be on it, that means that this church wants to serve. And when you say, what, what does love look like when it's actually expressed, it looks like service. So this, to me, this is a portrait of a thriving and growing church. And I just want to say how glad I am to be here with you. So thank you for welcoming me. Uh, James mentioned that my title is directory at large. Probably a lot of you are going, what does that mean? Part of what it means is I started with B4 Church in 2006 and now, 70 pounds later, I am director at large. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, um, I want to show you a picture. I mentioned that you have a thriving, growing community. I want to show you another picture of thriving and growing. Yeah? Just so you know, I, I literally have aww written in my notes <laughs> to just give you guys time. This is my granddaughter, Sophia. Um, she is the delight of my life. And she has nothing to do with this message. This is absolutely a craven attempt to curry favor with you. <laughs> um, but on the day that I met her, I had an aha moment. I fell in love with her. And something changed in my life. I was transformed. I, I was just a father, and now I was both a father and a grandfather. And all of us have these occasional, extraordinary aha moments that become part of our story, don't we? And we all experience them. Suddenly, we can ride a bike without training wheels. Or we can traverse a slack line at Smith Rock. Or we meet somebody that changes our lives forever. And even though they sneak up on us, we kind of respond with things like, I'm in love. This new job is how I want to spend the rest of my life, or not. This is what it feels like to be a father. 
Can we go back to the Father? That's okay. Um, this is my son-in-law, Sterling. And this is the moment that he met his daughter, Sophia. She was the little one you saw in the other picture. And what I love about this picture is the transformation that happened in him. That aha moment is written all over his face. But the other thing that I love about this picture is it reminds me of a conversation we had about a week later. And we were sitting in his living room, and he, he was just there. He didn't have a shirt on. And, you know, you do that skin-to-skin contact thing with new infants. And he had his little baby daughter on his chest, and they had a blanket over her. And she was sleeping. She was very content. And he just looked over at me, and he just said, I get it. I get it. Like, I, I've known some things intellectually. I've known some things about the word father, and I've known some things about family and about marriage, and I've even experienced some things about intimacy and life within those categories. But all of a sudden, all of these threads, all of these experiences come rushing together in this little life, and I have this aha moment, and he says, I get it. And we hunger for those moments of clarity and purpose, don't we? And I think part of the reason we hunger for them is because we live in a world that can often lack clarity and purpose. It can be persistently confusing, opaque, and frustrating. Industries collapse without warning. High-flying billionaires turn out to be paper titans. You say crypto? Trusted figures in leadership finish poorly, disappointing their followers. Employment ends abruptly. Your job? ends abruptly. A decades-old marriage dissolves, and an internship that you counted on after graduation turns out to be a mirage. Again, opaque, confusing, and frustrating. But the aha moments break through that in hopeful and life-giving ways, and there's a word for these moments. It's a word I want you to just kind of park in your consciousness. They're called epiphanies. Epiphanies. And they're usually defined as these kind of swift insights that arrive unexpectedly and they gift us with clarity. And they're common human experiences. When I mentioned that in the last service, I just kind of saw some heads bobbing up and down. Because they give us life giving insights at the intersection where learning and intuition meet the desire for meaning and purpose. Now, I, Christmas was just a couple of weeks ago. I imagine some of you saying, oh, holy night. And that one of my favorite lines in that carol says, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And we long for that kind of thrill. We need that kind of hope. Those are the kind of things. There's a thrilling hope that accompanies these aha moments. And we need them. And I believe we're actually made for them. And part of the reason I think that is because one of the most important of these moments happened in a time and place that was all about Jesus. And that was the aha of our creator arriving to rescue us exactly as he promised. And we associate Christ's arrival with Christmas, and rightly so. But as we move beyond Christmas into this new year, we've come to an ancient Christian celebration called, take a guess, Epiphany. It's part of a liturgical year, and it's traditionally associated with the visit of the Magi. Now, this is what Lane has asked me to talk about, because today would be the Sunday of Epiphany, and it gets its name from the idea that Jesus was finally revealed to the world of the Gentiles for the first time. And the Magi, the wise men who represented the Gentiles, they had 
an epiphany. Their journey to meet Jesus started with an epiphany. Now, how many of you had a nativity scene in your home over the holidays? Okay, it's quite a few hands. Okay, you probably had three dudes who looked like kings in it, right? Yep, you did. And part of the reason we do that is because our Christmas traditions take to t- tend to take a longer timeline and, and events that happen di- at different times, and they sort of mash them together for the sake of the celebration. So it probably didn't quite look like that with the Magi and the shepherds together. And what we do know is in Matthew's gospel. So let's look at how it really went down. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. You can also follow along on the screens while I read. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 12. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And, they had, and after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, there's some important stuff going on here, and this is a relatively brief narrative. So there is a strong tradition outside of the Bible that fills in some of the gaps and gives us additional detail, especially about the Magi. Now, traditionally, these wise men or these Magi are referred to as three individuals and with names and short bios. So I'll just run that down for you really quick. So Melchior is the oldest of these three scholars, and he's referred to sometimes as the king of Persia. Caspar is thought to be from the southern part of India, and Balthazar is traditionally referred to as the king of Macedonia. So what you have, essentially, is you have a group of scholars in Babylon that are from India and Persia and Macedonia. You have sort of this this surround in the ancient um, Near East. But Matthew doesn't include any of that detail for us. So we have to ask ourselves, what does he want us to see in this story that he sketches out? And what kind of aha moment is he trying to craft for us? Now, one of the things we can say with certainty is that Matthew clearly has some Old Testament verses about the Messiah in mind. So if you, if you think about Isaiah, if you think especially about Isaiah from chapter 40 on towards the end, you have this grand narrative about what God is going to do. And in 49.7, it says, kings will see and they will bow down. 
Um, in 60, verse 3, it says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Uh, much of the Psalms is about Messiah. In 72, it says, Let all kings bow in homage to him and all nations serve him. Now, certainly Matthew wants his readers to make those connections, but I think there's more here. There's more here for us than just kind of a history lesson. And if we look closely, if we dig into this epiphany, we're going to see that there is more than at least than one epiphany. There's actually two going on here. There's two aha moments happening in the text. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But in the meantime, I think it's really important for us to see a pattern that happens in this epiphany because that's what's going to be important for us. Epiphanies, at least the ones that God crafts for us, tend to follow a, um, a pattern. So the creator God who wants to communicate with us, who's a good communicator, reveals something to us about himself. And, and when we notice that revelation, it's intended to create a realization within us about how it might actually be meaningful for us. God's saying, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, but the realization that happens within us says this is why it's meaningful to you. And when those two things meet, they have a tendency to transform us, to change us. And this is true of the Magi, but it's also true of Herod. And those are the two epiphanies we're going to look at in this text. Um, <clears throat> if we look at that, we can see that there's some crucial lessons for us in these divergent passes. And we can learn how we might be encouraged to respond to our epiphanies when God reaches out to us. So let's start with the wise men. So when Matthew quotes them that says, we saw his star, what he's letting us know is that these wise men had actually noticed something that God was revealing about himself. Somehow they understood the significance of what they're observing. And we can't connect all those dots precisely, but we can make an educated guess. Matthew gives us some clues in the text. He says they're from the east. And he uses a word for magi that likely means that they were part of a priestly ruling class in Babylon. So that would make them highly educated royal advisors. And if you want sort of an analog in the Old Testament, think about David, or sorry, don't think about David, that wouldn't be right. Think about Daniel and his friends. These guys practiced what was called magical arts, which I would characterize as kind of a mashup between astronomy and astrology. They were most likely priests in an ancient Mesopotamian religion. But they were also well-versed in the Jewish traditions and the Hebrew scriptures. And you might say, well, how did that happen? There was still a strong Jewish community in Babylon at the time of Jesus' birth. They had been taken there during the captivity. I think if you remember your Bible history, there was a time in Israel's history when the Assyrians kind of came and they cleared out the northern part of the kingdom. And the Babylonians came over and they cleared out the southern part of the kingdom and, and the, God's people were taken captive. Of course, in Nehemiah, we have the story of them coming back and rebuilding the city. But, but there were those who were left behind. And they stayed there and they established schools. And they were, there was good scholarship there. And it would make sense that these scholars would have had interaction with them. Now, despite the Magi's familiarity with Judaism, most first century Jews would have considered them to be non-believing Gentiles. They would have thought, these guys are outside the family of God. They're outside the purposes of God. However, we know from the text that they were sufficiently acquainted with God and his ways that they recognized his handiwork. And they saw that star as a revelatory moment. They had begun to experience their epiphany. 
And they understood also that that revelation, that star, was meant to help them realize the significance of the moment. They showed up saying, we know that Israel's king is going to be born. That, that the king of kings who would restore God's rule on earth is now here. And so they made plans to make a pilgrimage and to pay homage. And Matthew doesn't tell us how many of them made the trip. The reason we have the traditional number of three is because three gifts are mentioned. Those gifts have some symbolic significance. The gold is intended to kind of point us to Jesus' kingship, his royalty. Um, the frankincense is incense. It's normally burnt as an offering. That's meant to kind of point us to his deity. And the myrrh is an embalming oil. So that, that kind of hints at the kind of sacrificial death he would suffer on our behalf. And whether there are three of these people or there's more, it doesn't matter. But what matters is that they're driven by their realization of God's revelation. So they assemble a traveling company that would have been massive and impressive. They would have been worthy of a, of a royal um, entourage and large enough to guarantee them some security on the trip because the journey would have been difficult in parts. Now, tradition is, uh, says that Epiphany happened 12 days after Jesus' birth, so it places their arrival 12 days after Christmas. But that journey would have taken at least four or five months, at the very least. Um, some people say it could be as much as two years, given the fact that Herod wanted to kill every child two years and younger. Regardless, they traveled a northern route, so they're, they're in Babylon, and they're traveling up along these river valleys into the highlands of the Fertile Crescent, and then they kind of drop down into the northern part of Israel by Mount Hermon, and then down by Dan, and then they go down the Rift Valley, eventually arriving in Jerusalem. And what, what sustained them in this journey? I would argue that part of it was their aha moment, their epiphany. And here, here it's, it makes sense to stop and ask ourselves a question. Does that sound familiar? Because can't we all relate to times in our lives when we lean into something God showed us or he told us or he revealed to us or he promised us and that gets us through the rigors of the moment? That's a point of contact between us and the people in this story. So finally, they arrive in Jerusalem where they assume the king of Israel would be born, and it turns out that they were wrong. And this is where the second epiphany enters our story. Matthew tells us that Herod is disturbed by their arrival. Why would Herod be disturbed? Well, like the Magi, he understands that God is revealing something important. The first thing he does is he digs deeper with the teachers of the law, and they uncover Micah 5.2. That was the verse that's quoted in, in Matthew's story uh, in answer to, to his question about where would Messiah be born. And at this point, Herod fakes a desire to worship. He realizes that this newborn king threatens him in his royal line, and this is where his path, his epiphany, and that of the Magi begins to diverge. In Herod's mind, he cannot welcome this promised ruler. This promised ruler is too much a threat to his throne. His throne is vulnerable. His throne is based on the power of Rome. His throne is based on political machination. Herod was more Rome's man than he was God's man. He was installed by imperial power, and using that leverage, he rebuilt uh, Israel's cities into copies of Greco-Roman cities. And the scale and the beauty of his building projects earned him the title Herod the Great. 
However, it was not his prowess as a builder that kept him in power. It was his willingness to murder any rivals, including his own sons. And what's striking about Matthew's account is the manner of Herod's transformation. See, in order to take a look at that, we got to take a step back and say, at least nominally, Herod was a Jew. He had access to the scriptures and the best teachers of the law. He could not have been in a better position to welcome the birth of Messiah. But instead, Matthew records an event known as the Massacre of the Innocents. And that's when Herod sent his men to kill every child two and under in Bethlehem. The man who killed his adult family members to stay in power now stoops to murdering children. And it's shocking, but Herod's realization of God's revelation only served to harden him further. The Magi's response to their epiphany couldn't be more different. Matthew records that they have come to worship him. These pagan Gentile magicians undertook a 1,700-mile journey to worship God's king, the Messiah, and it, and it might be easy for us to think that, well, they were, they were royalty in that day. It wouldn't have been unusual for royal advisors to make a royal pilgrimage to honor the birth of a new king. But what's interesting about it is when they say we have come to worship him, Matthew uses exactly the same word that he uses when he quotes Jesus in Matthew 4, where Jesus says, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only Matthew wants us to see that these were more than royal ambassadors. These men had been transformed into humble worshipers. And throughout the rest of the story, they maintain that posture. When they're warned in a dream about Herod's plot to kill the children, they return to to the east by a different route. So they had been changed by their aha moment. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier that this text is pretty brief, And so there are a lot of traditions outside of the Bible that talk about these men and talk about what happened to them. And one of them holds that in the same way that Paul went west into imperial Rome to spread the gospel, that Thomas, the apostle, went east into India. And as the story goes, he met these three men in Babylon, baptized them as Christians, and they eventually were martyred for their faith. Now, I I don't know if that's true or not, All I do know is that that story's been around for a couple thousand years. And and yeah, it's not in the Bible, but I just told it to you, so do what you will with it. But where does all that history and that background and these guys' names, where does that leave us? Are we supposed to just see an interesting story here and know that somehow Jesus fulfilled some prophecy? I think there's more for us here, and I think the story offers us that pathway that we talked about earlier. As we respond to God's initiative, we step into that place of revelation. Sometimes it happens when you pick up your Bible and you read something, you go, why did I notice that before? Sometimes it happens when somebody just loves you. They do something loving for you simply because you exist and you're worthy of God's love. Sometimes it happens when someone says something to you and all of a sudden you go, I think that was from God. You have a moment of revelation that invites you into a realization about what does that mean for me? What's my response going to be? What what am I going to do? And hopefully, if your response is like that of the Magi, there's transformation. So when God shows us, whether small and intimate moments or whether we're thinking about everything he's done in history, 
He does so, inviting us to embrace those moments as transformative epiphanies. He's relating to us through these aha moments in ways that we're designed for. And the question isn't whether God will create these moments for us. The question is, how will we respond to them? Will we embrace them like the Magi did when they saw the star? Will we take a turn in our lives? Will we commit significant resources and time and energy to following God, to chasing down where he leads? Or will we reject God's initiative and try to secure our own advantage like Herod did? Will we remain sensitive? Because these aha moments keep coming. The more we respond to God, the more he reveals himself to us. And will we remain sensitive in that process, in that journey with God, in that relationship with him, much like the Magi did? Will we be willing to take a complete left turn and go back home by a different way? You see, I think that's what God's after. He's longing for that kind of genuine, heartfelt response from us, just like he saw in that of the Magi. My friend Bo Stern Bailey puts it, or Brady, sorry. I don't know why I called her Bo Stern Bailey. Um, puts it so well when she says it's about illumination, not manipulation. It's about illumination, the illumination of God's revelation, not manipulation. So God is not trying to dominate us or compel our response. His sole motivation is his love for us, for you and for me. And when he offers us this moment, these moments, it's an invitation to dance with him within the embrace of that love. And even more remarkable than that, he actually condescends. The God of the universe, the creator of all that is, decides to wait on you to see if you'll return his affection. And all the while, his spirit whispers, God loves you. God loves you. He doesn't care whether we're part of the religious insiders or whether we're more on the outside like the Magi. We don't have to have it all figured out, and he's fine if we need to live with open questions. But our transformation is almost always, it almost always starts and is nurtured in these kinds of gracious aha moments. And even better, <laughs> beyond what it offers us, in, in, inside us, in that interiority of our soul, it actually invites us into something much bigger, what I would call a grand transformation that reaches far beyond these interior bounds. Because God has promised to renew everything. And listen to how Paul describes this journey, this adventure in his letter to the Ephesians. We're not going to scream this text because it's a bit of a mashup. I just want you to kind of slow down and take a breath and listen. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together 
to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In this passage, Paul refers to an incredible revolution, a new thing that God is doing. And its crux, its crucial inaugurating aha moment is the, is the disruption that began with Jesus' arrival at Advent. This includes an end to the hostility between God and his creatures. It includes a new humanity, a family living together with their creator and one another in mutual love, and a living temple where God dwells by his spirit. I mean, this isn't just cosmic. This is you. What I read in Ephesians 4 is you. You would not be having new people come. You would not be baptizing people. You would not be gathering together in the numbers that you're gathering together if God wasn't doing this kind of work in your midst. This new creation is where the epiphany of the Magi is leading them as royal representatives of the Gentiles. They were an embodied international cohort of rulers. And as such, they anticipated something that John writes about in Revelation chapter 7. Again, just take a breath and listen. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This, this place, these verses, Ephesians 4, Revelation 7, this is where our aha moments are designed to lead us as God reveals what he's doing. We're invited into that adventure, and we're transformed into a new humanity in the process. So this is where we get to go together. And God performs the transformation, transformation in the process. We don't have to be fully transformed and then we get to do it. We do it and we're transformed while we do it. And it's apparent to anyone who's paying attention. And I'll say this again and again and again this morning. Anyone who's paying attention will see that this church is on that trajectory. You, as a people, are on that trajectory. As we conclude this morning, uh, we're going to take communion. So if you want to take out your, your elements. But before we do that, I want to make an invitation. If you're here this morning, and one of the things that you're thinking about as you're listening to this message is, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm part of that adventure. I'm not sure I've said yes to those aha moments, to those epiphanies. I just want to encourage you that you can do that right here and right now. You don't have to jump up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to check something off on a card. But you do need to tell somebody. And as we conclude this service, there's going to be people down here for prayer. Ashley, when, when we do the response song, she's going to call the prayer team forward. If you've decided that you want to be a part of this grand adventure, you want to say yes to an aha moment, you want to be part of what the advent of Jesus is all about, then make sure you come up and tell someone and pray with them. That's one of the best ways you can start that adventure. Um, yay, I have communion elements. Good. I, <laughs> I was a little nervous there for a second. Um, communion is almost always a 
uh, a backward-looking celebration. And that's rightly so. I mean, Jesus actually used the words, do this in remembrance of me. And so we are remembering what he gave us. But I, I want to also encourage you, because the first mention in the New Testament about communion is not in the Gospels. It's Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he says this. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul has in mind all the things I read about in Ephesians 4 and Revelation 7. So while we remember through this common act of communion, we also look forward to what Jesus is doing, what God is doing. So why don't you pray with me before we take the bread? Jesus, on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And so we do that, Lord. We do that in remembrance of your sacrifice, but we also do that knowing that you did that for a reason. You went there for a reason, and that was to make a new family in a new world. And we look forward to that as we take this bread. In Jesus' name, amen. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And this is the cup of a new covenant. Again, remembering his sacrifice for us and looking forward to the culmination, the consummation of that new covenant. Would you pray with me before we take? Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness, your love for us, your willingness to give all that you had and all that you are on our behalf. We receive this cup now with joy, remembering what you did and looking forward to sharing this cup again with you one day at your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for, for celebrating that with me. You know, it's interesting there are a few practices that unite the church. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Um, there are a few practices that unite the church. One's baptism and the other is communion. It's something that um, points to the unity that we spoke about in Ephesians 4 and Revelation 6. Hey, I know this is a little different. Um, sometimes when you have a guest in your home, they like to do things a little differently. So I typically will end a service. We end a service at B4 with something called a benediction. Uh, that's kind of a fancy liturgical word that just means I would love to speak a blessing over you. It's kind of half blessing, half prayer. Um, and if you uh, would like to receive that, you can kind of just, just hold your hands out like this in a posture of reception. And uh, I'd like to, to pray for you. Uh, may you be a people who experience the hope-filled thrill of God's revelation. May you realize its meaning in wise and godly ways. And may you be transformed by each and every epiphany into a people who look ever more like Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.